3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, listeners. You're on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM, and it is just gone 7.01 in the morning. Good morning, Malika. Good morning, Rosie. Morning. Oh, Rosie, do we have you? Oh, looks like, uh, well, technical difficulties, uh, but we will, let me sort that out. Hey, Rosie, are you there? Good morning. Can you hear me now? Oh, yeah. mad. All right. So uh, once again, uh, as you will have become accustomed to, we're across two studios. So apologies again for technical difficulties. Um, but hey, some great news today. I believe we're all double vaccinated. Is that correct? In the studio. In the, the studio. All the studio double back. Not across, not across the whole um, continent, but <laughs> yes, in the 3CR studios, we are all double vaxxed. Yeah, uh, just a reminder, uh, please keep checking those exposure sites, uh, monitoring symptoms, getting tested if you need to, and please get vaccinated if you can. It is absolutely imperative that we all, yeah, do our best to keep each other safe. Um, Things are very difficult right now, and that's something that we're definitely going to hear about uh, in today's show. So maybe we'll jump into a rundown. Uh, first off, we're going to be hearing from Elle Gibbs, who's a disabled person, writer, and disability rights advocate. And Elle and I caught up yesterday to discuss how the federal and state governments have failed disabled people during the COVID-19 vaccine rollout, including through the covert deprioritization of vulnerable community members who were meant to be covered in phases 1A and 1B of vaccination. We will then be speaking with Jay Coonan from the Anti-Poverty Centre, who will join us to speak about the proposed sale of public land by Moreland Council to build a privately owned health and community services precinct in Coburg and the importance of prioritising public housing over private profit. And then um, we'll be hearing from Dimity Hawkins, one of the speakers at tonight's raucous anti-AUKUS caucus webinar organised by renegade activists. And Dimity is a PhD candidate at Swinburne University and her thesis examines opposition to nuclear weapons testing in the Pacific. So um, we'll be kind of diving further into uh, that part of the AUKUS um, agreement. Was that diving pun intended? Okay, I'm going to stop. It wasn't, and I'm, I regret. <laughs> I know, because I've been, yeah, I've been thinking about all of the, the puns that I can make, so it's good that I'm not um, doing that interview. Um, after that, we're going to hear from Laura, who's a clinical psychologist from Melbourne, and they're a specialist in eating disorders and have been for over seven years through research, outreach work, support groups, and as a therapist. And they currently work in public and private practice supporting individuals affected by eating disorders. And they're joining us today to talk about the intersection between eating disorders and COVID-19. And then lastly, we'll be joined by Anu Krishnan, a specialist family violence practitioner with over 25 years experience in direct services, prevention and training. She works within mental health and family violence, and um, she will be joining us to speak about the situation for culturally and linguistically diverse communities experiencing or accessing support for family violence in Victoria. 
And just some content warnings for those last two interviews, so giving you a heads up now. For the interview with Laura, there will be discussions around disordered eating and body image. And with Anu, there will be discussions around family and domestic violence. And we'll provide support lines before and after those interviews as well. I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday, 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. Here on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM, and we're going to jump into some headlines. Rosie, take it away. Yes, yeah, so headlines today for the 7th of October. Queensland police have acknowledged the cultural rights of a group of Wangan and Jugalingu traditional owners to conduct ceremony on the site of Adani's Carmichael coal mine. Adani claims the First Nations group is trespassing, but police cited the Queensland Human Rights Act and said that they would not be removing the group from the area at this time. The Wangan and Jugalingu groups mark this as the first time the, right has been, the Rights Act has been effectively used in this way um, in Australia. And uh, we spoke with Cody a few, week, Cody, um, a few weeks ago, um, who is part of this group of um, traditional owners, and it's really great to see that they're still able to continue that protest. Sorry, that ceremony um, on, the, on the Adani coal mine. For Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners, the next story contains the name of an Aboriginal person who has passed. This week, we have seen yet another case of underreporting of the disappearance of a First Nations woman, this time in South Australia. The family, family of Charlene Warrior previously issued a plea for information with her last seen when she went to pick up her daughter from her ex-partner's house on September 18. This week, a body was found in the area which South Australian police suspect to be Charlene's. In Victorian news, the Taking Control of Our Heritage report has been submitted to the Victorian Aboriginal Affairs Minister this week. Consultations found First Nations people have been traumatised by the destruction of cultural heritage in Victoria and that there is an overwhelming racism in perceptions about their ability to undertake functions of the Aboriginal Heritage Act. The report calls on the Victorian Government to reform the law and give stronger powers to First Nations groups to protect protect their cultural heritage, including furthering self-determination efforts. And finally, for-profit childcare providers have been called out for failing to keep Australian children safe in a report by the United Workers' Union released this week. Data released through Freedom of Information requests reveals that for-profit providers deliver poorer safety and lower quality learning compared to the not-for-profit sector. For-profit centres make up 74% of breaches of safety standards that require enforcement action and, the report notes, it's almost impossible for parents and the public to access information about centres' track records. The United Workers' Union is calling for greater transparency. And that's all for Thursday Morning Headlines. Thanks so much, Rosie. And, yeah, I think... 
Um, there's a lot to be across this week, and hopefully with the stories that we're bringing you this week as well, you'll be able to parse uh, some of those concerns a bit more deeply, especially I'm thinking about all of the media around AUKUS, because I've been pretty um, – look, I'm not really on top of what's been happening. Uh, it is something that I'm not very familiar with, but I'm really looking forward to having an expert on the show to sort of parse some of that for us, eh? Yeah, definitely. I mean, just doing the research in in order to be able to ask the questions, like it is a huge area um, that covers geopolitics, it covers history of um, nuclear weapons, nuclear power and nuclear disarmament. It covers um, resistance to that. It covers cyber warfare and surveillance. So it's it's massive and um, definitely really important to have both speakers on on radio and also um, events like tonight's um, Antiochus Caucus um, to help people understand and kind of get organized around this kind of thing. Yeah, 100%. Well, I think we might go to a track. Uh, This is Out the Door by Emma Donovan and the Putbacks.
You are listening to 3CR 855 AM. We just heard a great track called Out the Door by Emma Donovan and the Putbacks. Um, and we are now going to be listening to an interview with Emma and, sorry, with Freya and Elle Gibbs. Elle Gibbs is a disabled person, writer and disability rights advocate. And Elle caught up with Priya to discuss how the federal and state governments have failed disabled people during the COVID-19 vaccine rollout, including through the covert deprioritization of vulnerable community members who were meant to be covered in phase 1A and 1B of vaccination, as revealed in a recently released Disability Royal Commission draft report. Hi, Elle. Thanks so much for joining us today on Thursday Breakfast. Always a pleasure, Priya. I was wondering, you know, for today's conversation, can we jump into a discussion of where we're at with the vaccine rollout? And can you tell us a bit about issues with the rollout in relation to changes with phase 1A and 1B of the rollout? Because there's been some media around this lately, but I think it's been uh, potentially a little confusing for people to understand what the back and forth has been about. Sure. So uh, people with disability or a few groups of people with disability were in the initial stages of the, or stages of the vaccine rollout. So that was phase 1A. And so that was people with disability who live in group homes. That's about 20 and residential aged care. So that's people under 65. That's about 26,000 people. And uh, disability support workers were also meant to be in that very, very first phase. And then in phase 1B was people like me, the wonky immune systems or taking immunosuppressants and with a bunch of other conditions or diseases or that kind of stuff. And we were meant to be in phase 1B, which was coming soon after that. But what we found out last week was the Disability Royal Commission put out a report where they had gone through in like ridiculously meticulous details how the health department had made decisions to systematically deprioritise us, you know, to actually make decisions that we were no longer actually a priority, which we were meant to be in the beginning. And the whole reason that we were a priority was, you know, that for people with disability and people with chronic illness, you know, we are at an extreme risk of both getting COVID but also dying from COVID. And so that's been the case since, you know, all of this started 18 months ago and why we were part of this initial and early stages of the rollout. So it's just been devastating to read those kind of meticulous details that the Royal Commission has uncovered about those decisions that were made, you know, to actively not prioritise us. Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely shameful to actually see this report come out of the Disability Royal Commission, which is already investigating massive concerns with the way that people with disability are being treated, the quality of life of people with disability in group homes, for example, um, who were meant to be prioritized and now um, have secretly been deprioritized. And now we're sort of finding out what the effects are as we move towards these so-called freedom days of 70 and 80 percent vaccinated. But what does vaccine coverage kind of look like across the country right now for people with disability? And can you tell us about some of the issues with data collection around uh, disabled people's vaccination rates? Yeah. So uh, we're still thinking about, I think it's about 20, 20 something percent of people who live in group homes haven't had any shots at all. So that's where we are with people in phase 1A. In terms of phase 1B, I have the faintest idea. Uh, as far as we've been able to work out, the only people that they've got or they're making public about um, uh, the vaccine is people who get their supports from the NDIS. So, for example, that doesn't count B. 
Like I get my sports privately and that's, you know, out of pure stubbornness mostly. Um, but it means that only, you know, 10% of people with disability are being counted and counted in the rollout. And so the minister put out in response to the Royal Commission's report, uh, a media release that had a whole bunch of statistics. But, you know, given that half the people who are on the NDIS are kids, and we know that kids haven't even really started getting their vaccination, it really was quite misleading in terms of um, only counting, you know, NDIS, you know, people who get their NDIS supports who are over 16, and then having separate stuff for people 12 to 15, but nothing for people under 12. So it was a really kind of distorted, um, those statistics, and it's been something that we've been asking for from the beginning. And now we know why they weren't willing to actually give it to us. But, you know, in every one of the meetings that their various people have had with government since February, it's been, where is the data? Like, can you please release the data? But they've been putting it out in, you know, smooshed in together with the aged care data, which has been very, you know, to be honest, depressing because it's kind of, um, they don't seem to think that it's important. But also now we know that it's because it was showing how terrible things were. Yeah, and there also seems to be this total lack of understanding from government about what disability residential support um, looks like. So a lack of understanding of smaller group homes with, you know, like two to four people. But I'm also thinking about things like the nuances of vaccinating everybody involved in respite care, those kinds of things to, you know, dropping the ball on that and assuming everyone's in a large facility. That was wild. Like it really was to read that they just didn't actually even understand what a group home was or thought that people lived in really big centres, didn't consider people who lived in boarding houses at all. And so we know that that's a significantly marginalised group of people with disability, often with psychosocial disability and intellectual disability, who live in very marginalised conditions. Um, it didn't account, you know, people with disability in prisons. Um, it didn't count people in forensic Detention, you know, we know in New South Wales we've had significant outbreaks of people in mental health facilities, in locked wards where um, we've set to see closures of other mental health facilities to actually deal with that. It's been one of these kind of knock-on effects in New South Wales. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I was also wondering if you could talk about, you know, because there was this draft report released by the Disability Royal Commission on the COVID-19 vaccine rollout. Uh, but you also did write a recent paper for Crokey Health Media, and you mentioned some emissions from the report as well. So I was wondering if you could take us through those. Yeah, and I mean, the report really does focus just on um, NDIS participants, participants not a word I'd like to use, but it does focus on that narrow area, and it doesn't really look at the problems of the other 90% of people with disability. It doesn't talk about the specific needs for First Nations communities, Um you know, with disability who have had significant barriers to getting the vaccine. Um, they didn't talk about prisons, which I thought was a huge oversight, given the outbreaks that we have seen in prisons, um, the urgent calls to release uh, people on remand in particular. Um, it didn't talk on forensic mental health and those kind of things. So I think some of that was a, a real oversight from the Royal Commission and a missed opportunity to really understand the broadness of people with disability. Um, I worry that there is so much narrow focus on the NDIS and we're seen as only, only of, you know, only, only matter or only count, you know, for, uh, getting, getting supports through the NDIS. Whereas, you know, we are equal citizens like everybody else and surely we are, you know, need to be included. And I think 
the different responses from state and territory governments have also been a huge issue. Like in Victoria, for example, there's been a, a program with disability liaison officers who actually you know, were in place last year during the big outbreak in Melbourne and then have sort of followed on. And they've been really supportive of being able to um, find accessible vaccination places with people, helping them, people book, do all of that kind of stuff, a bit of a bespoke service. Um, we have been advocating for that in New South Wales to, to no result whatsoever. Um, there's been other things like ACT has done some good stuff uh, around Canberra. So there's been some good things in some states and territories, but we've really been missing from any kind of uh, structured engagement on how we actually make sure that people overcome those barriers. So, for example, one thing that we've all been advocating for is in-home vaccinations. You know, do you think we have got anywhere six months down the track and we still do not have in-home vaccinations? They're doing in-home vaccinations in lots of other countries, including New Zealand, India, across Europe. Do you think we can manage in-home vaccinations? No. So, um, and that's been a huge barrier. I know people who are still not vaccinated because they are housebound and it's not good enough that we just go, no, you don't matter. Yeah, again, just a, a fundamental disregard for the lived experiences of people with disability. And that's actually something that I wanted to turn to because I know there's an advisory committee on the health emergency response to COVID-19 for people with disability. And I was wondering what their intended role is and whether they've been consulted about, you know, this vaccine rollout issue and whether there's been a response from them uh, since the announcement. Yeah. So that committee was set up at the beginning of well, during COVID last year. I think it was sort of April last year that it started. And that was really pushed for by the disabled people's organisations and disability representative organisations as a direct way of engaging with the Department of Health in particular to kind of go, hey, you need to actually pay attention to our community and the diversity of our needs. So it's been meeting all the way along. Um, I've actually, you know, ended up having to go to a couple uh, and it's um, a meeting where People raise concerns, they publish the communique so you can read them on the website. Um, and yes, people have raised all of the issues from the Royal Commission and have been agitating for, you know, data, for better rollout, for, you know, all of these issues all the way along. You know, better communications, like actually doing communications that are targeted at people with disability in easy read, in different languages, you know, that are actually culturally appropriate. I don't understand. Honestly, I've done some of these consultations around communications and said to them, I'll just send the exact same emails to you that I sent 18 months ago because it's exactly the same issue that we were facing during COVID. And I don't understand why you keep saying we don't know what to do because we keep telling you what to do (laughs) and you just don't do it. So it is extremely frustrating. Yeah, I mean, the answers are there. They just need to be actioned. Now, I wanted to turn to uh, the state roadmaps for, you know, these so-called freedom dates of around 70 or 80 percent. I mean, New South Wales is, I think, currently hitting the 70 percent mark. Um, But, you know, of course, this doesn't take into account the massive effects that this will have on disabled folks and and or immunocompromised folks as well. So I just wanted to hear your thoughts on on those roadmaps as well. Yeah. When the Royal Commission is really clear, you know, states and territories shouldn't be opening up until more disabled people are, you know, actually vaccinated. There's no sign that that's going to happen. I mean, we've just had a change of premier in New South Wales. So I think any chance that we've got to 
you know, the response from government has been really clear that they that they're going to open up anyway. And you know, a lot of the public response has also been. I mean, I understand lockdown's really difficult. I really do. I haven't seen my mum in two years. You know, I'm really looking forward to coming down to Melbourne eventually, and being able to see my family as well. I really, you know, empathise with how hard the lockdown has been, and I have been lucky enough to keep my job and all of that kind of stuff. But we can't. We have to be careful about making sure that people with disability and people who are sick are safe. We can't just say to them, bad luck, you know, you can just stay at home forever. You can just never go and see people. You know, we can't have that kind of thing. We have to be, you know, cognizant of the fact that so many people still haven't had the opportunity to get vaccinated and it's not fair. We have to actually make sure that people have the chance to get vaccinated. I mean, I saw today they're closing vaccination centres and they're closing testing hubs and stuff because people want to get back to normal. And I'm doing air quotes here, you know, but how do we do that while we're not actually providing any kind of roadmap to get making sure that disabled people are safe, are safe? The idea of getting back to normal hinges on disposing of disabled folks in our community. And I think, you know, we, we'd spoken about this earlier about how media coverage kind of gets bored with topics that go on for a long time when issues aren't resolved or when nothing changes. But the fact of the matter is we can't ignore this. And I do worry about that all the time. I mean, what is it going to take? How many, how many disabled people is it going to take for people to die or to get sick to, for people to pay attention, you know? And, um, I'm desperately worried about my community. Desperately worried. Yeah. Well, I mean, you've been doing an excellent job of advocating. Hopefully we'll be able to keep having these conversations to keep amplifying these concerns. And Elle, where can people find your work and the writing that you do? So I'm at Blood Shovels on uh, Twitter. Uh, so come and find me there yelling about things, mostly vaccines at the moment. Um, and um, my writing stuff is at lgibbs.com.au. And I have a Patreon if you want to support that as well. Awesome. Thank you. And, yeah, just another reminder to everybody listening, uh, just because, you know, the issues aren't at the top of the headlines, it doesn't mean that they aren't still going on. And if there are people that you can write to your local members um, you know, your your premier to get them to listen to disabled folks, let them know that non-disabled folks as well are, you know, paying attention to this, care about this, care about disabled members of our community. That is so important. Yeah, absolutely. And every Australian Counts has um, a way that you can actually tell your vaccine story if you've got a chance. So just uh, Google every Australian Counts and you can find that there. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Elle. Pleasure. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM, and it is 7.27 in the morning. And you just heard an interview with Elle Gibbs, who's a disabled person, writer, and disability rights advocate, who caught up with me earlier this week to discuss how the federal and state governments have failed disabled people during the COVID-19 vaccine rollout, including through the covert deprioritization of vulnerable community members who were meant to be covered in phases 1A and 1B of vaccination. And this was revealed in a recently released Disability Royal Commission draft report. 20 Years on the Inside is an iconic new podcast series that gives voice to the experience of First Nations people in the Victorian prison system. 20 Years on the Inside, I'm Vicky Roach. And I'm Kutcher Edwards. This series reflects on 20 years of listening to our mobs on the inside as part of the Beyond the Bars prison broadcasts. 
20 Years on the Inside is essential listening for anyone looking to educate themselves about the realities of life on the inside and the need to end Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander incarceration. Well, a lot of the boys mentioned about being in jail. What you do really isn't who you are. You know, it's how you love your family, it's how you care about your cousins, and it's how you care about your people. That's what, that's what this is about for me. Catch the podcast via the 3CR website or on your favourite podcast app. And we're back on 3CR Thursday morning breakfast. And yeah, just a reminder again about the awesome 20 years podcast, I think, it has just been such an amazing showcase of the wonderful work that um, Beyond the Bars has done over yeah, 20 years and really, really recommend that people go have a listen. And you can also go back and listen to Beyond the Bars broadcast since I think around 2008, 2006. Um, you know, don't quote me on that, but they are available on the 3CR website. And now we're joined by Jay Coonan from the Anti-Poverty Centre, who's speaking with us about the proposed sale of public land by Moreland Council to build a privately owned health and community services precinct in Coburg and the importance of prioritising public housing over private profit. So, Jay, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no worries. So I reckon we just jump straight into it. Can you tell us a bit about the proposal from the Moreland Council to sell council-owned land? I understand this is at 29 and 31 Urquhart Street and part of 68 to 82 Bell Street in Coburg, and the intention is to develop a health and community services precinct. So when was this initially proposed and what stage is it at? Uh, sorry, what stage is it at? And can you tell us a bit about the consultation process as well? Yeah, for sure. So based Basically, the land has was acquired by the council in the 1980s, and um, it's been trying to source uh, health services in that, on that plot of land for the past about decade. So, in 2020, they uh, the council got a unsolicited uh, you know offer for the site, and then in 2021, kind of fills it in, um, and then have begun like public consultations you know, within the past six months um, and ask for submissions beginning in September. And then tonight they will be holding a community forum for those who um, made submissions um, at which I'll be speaking at. And um, then it will go to a vote to the council in November where they'll decide to either, you know, keep the 15,000 square kilometre area in as a council asset or completely privatise it for this uh you know, uh, private health service. Yeah, so this is a, I mean, this is an interesting one, especially during pandemic times. I'm wondering what are some of your concerns about the selling off of council land and the ramifications and how they weigh up against a community need for health and social services, um, as well as claims from the council about job creation and economic development in the area? Well, governments cried uh, jobs and growth, and we're, we're not really drowning in either or of them. You know, um, houses, people are out of work because of the pandemic. Um, house prices are soaring, um, and there's not, and inequality continues to grow in the community. Sure, we do need these health services, um, but what, at what cost? We should be retaining, you know, community-owned land, especially 15,000 square kilometres, instead of, like, just yet another government getting a sugar rush from, you know, the, the few hundred million dollars that they'll get from the sale 
instead of, you know, retaining the land and looking at more longer-term sustainable economic opportunities from it rather than just a quick sell-off. Yeah, and, you know, once once this land is sold, it's really hard to get back, right? Yeah, exactly. So it, once it's gone, it's gone, um, and the land will continue to appreciate over the years. So it'll be, if the council has to ever buy it back, it'll be way too expensive for them and you know that'll be more profit for a private company rather than the people from within the direct community mm, yeah and i've um had the chance to speak with people like uh, dr kate shaw who's a, an urban geographer about um just the the importance of uh retaining public land in public hands uh to make sure that spaces are not you know opened up to things like um, rapid gentrification as well um so I also wanted to uh, turn to some of the concerns about the services that are being um, that are that are going to be operating there, and which you know feeds into these concerns about privatization. So could you uh, speak a little bit about that? Yeah, for sure. So uh, some of the site, uh, some of the things on site will be private. So there's going to be a private mental health. Uh, rehabilitation site and there's going to be a private short stay and some community services and not-for-profit run things as well. So there is a bit of, you know, you know, um, it's not concentration of private, but it will be owned by, the land will be owned privately and there are private operated services. So for example, the mental health site, we know in Victoria that we have a mental health crisis and care and just we don't have the care or support for it. So why are we only putting in a private suite where, you know, the share of, you know, people within this country uh, taking out some form of uh, private health insurance is decreasing and the average age of a person with health insurance is increasing. So, you know, there is an aspect that these services that they're putting on that site are not for the people within Moreland. They're only catering to a certain, you know, demographic who is particularly older. So, you know, it doesn't make much sense when we've got, you know, mass gentrification in the inner north and they're only creating uh, services for a particular cohort of people. Yeah, definitely. I think um, that point that you've made about whether or not the services are actually for people in the area is is really important and also makes me think of what's happening with um, the, you know, the proposed uh, redevelopment of the Preston Market site as well. Um, yeah. yeah, so this is, you know, this is happening all over the north where, um, you know, in that case, the land is not, I don't, I don't believe that's held by the council, but at the same time, it's thinking about whether or not uh, development proposals in your council area are actually going to be serving the people that live there. Yeah. Um, so I was wondering um, if we could also talk a bit about um, what state and federal government responsibilities are here in terms of supporting vital public services and maintaining ownership of public land, because I know uh, that one of the arguments put up by Moreland Council around why the health services are privatized is that there wasn't um, adequate funding to sustain uh, public health services or, or like a wholly public uh, health service complex in the area. Yeah, exactly. So they, the council had, uh, according to their discussions, uh, as you know, early as this year with the state government trying to seek purely public health services and the state government just essentially flat out refused. So it, this is where it comes, yeah, to the state and federal government. It needs to encourage councils to retain, like, their public assets as a form of, like, sustainable income over the years. So, you know, that's why, like, I've written to, you know, Peter Khalil, the local uh, member for Wills, 
um, and because we're coming up to an election cycle. So if we can, you know, uh, not only uh, federal, but also state election cycle, we really need to push politicians to say we need better communities. We need to cater for, you know, the increase in demand for public housing because of the skyrocketing retail prices, which are only going to get worse as, you know, the economic crisis from COVID continues. So we need to get public housing. We need to get community-run services on these sites, which will, you know, it's more sustainable for the community, but also for the council, like, financially and economically over, you know, the decades. So it's really, we really need to prevent state and federal governments pushing local governments to sell off their assets, to keep them, and to create something beneficial for the community by the community. Absolutely. Well, look, it's neoliberalism, folks. We got to push back <laughs> against it. We need to yeah, keep public land in public hands because at the end of the day, um, you know, continuing to sell off public assets is not doing, you know, not doing our future communities as we, you know, look towards, you know, how our children, grandchildren are going to be living in these spaces any favors. Um, so totally. look, uh, thank you so much for taking us through this. Can you tell people, uh, particularly Moreland residents, where they can find out more and also get involved? Yeah, so basically, if you, if you want to read more about it, the information is on the, the council website for the Coburg Health Precinct. Um, and more importantly, you know, obviously, if you're a resident, you're totally against the idea. I highly encourage you to write to your councillors because there is, you know, there's a very good chance that they would just sell this off without much consideration or vision for what it could be. So, you know, your email or phone call could have a massive impact for, like, your local community. So, number one, get in touch with them, read up on it if you want, and three, like, I've kind of just <laughs> spearheaded this um, within the past few weeks, so best way to get in touch with me is through Twitter. So my handle is at jkoonan, um, and I'm more than happy to talk with you and hear some ideas about what we can do next. Yeah, absolutely. And is that public forum, uh, sorry, is that forum tonight open to the public? Uh, I don't believe it is. I think it's just a Zoom between uh, those invited and the councillors, I'm afraid. Okay, no no worries. But that is for people that did make submissions in uh, in that call, and I'm sure, Jay, you will be updating people about how that goes on your Twitter account. For sure. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us and uh, talking us through this. And that was Jay Coonan from the Anti-Poverty Centre, who spoke with us about the proposed sale of public land by Moreland Council to build a privately owned health and community services precinct in Coburg and the importance of prioritising public housing over private profit. And you can find out more by looking up Coburg Health Precinct at conversations.moreland.vic.gov.au. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. change we need to show broad community support. Show your support for walking and cycling in the city of Yarra by appearing as a champion on the Streets Alive website. Representing your local street, neighbourhood or school. It's fast, free and simple. 
Learn more at streets-alive-yarra.org. A 3CR supporter. You are listening to 3CR 855 AM. We are now going to be listening to a track by Pookie called Halloween. You're on 3CR Thursday morning breakfast and just then you heard a new track, Halloween, from Pookie. Um, okay, so regular listeners may have heard earlier in the week Mercedes Zanker from 3CR's Uprise Radio talking on Monday morning breakfast about um, the recently announced AUKUS pack between Australia, the UK 
and the US. So this morning we're going to speak with Dimity Hawkins, one of the speakers at tonight's Raucous Antiochus Caucus. I'm getting really good at saying that now. Webinar organised by renegade activists. And Dimity is a PhD candidate at Swinburne University and her thesis examines opposition to nuclear weapons testing in the Pacific. Uh, Dimity has over two decades of experience in the civil society sector working as an advocate on issues of dis- nuclear disarmament and broader social, environmental and human rights activism as well as being a co-founder of the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. And she's joining us this morning to talk about the implications of the AUKUS Pact with specific focus on the announcement of nuclear subs that accompanied um, the announcement of the alliance. So welcome this morning, Dimity. Thank you so much. Lovely to be with you. It's great to have you. So um, as I just mentioned, we have covered AUKUS the AUKUS Alliance earlier in the week on um, breakfast, but for listeners who weren't able to catch that conversation, I was wondering if you could um, tell us what AUKUS is and just speak to its geopolitical significance as well as as how it relates to maybe other military treaties and alliances alliances like ANZUS and Five Eye. For sure. Well, for those who missed it, on the 16th of September here in Australia, 15th over in the U.S., um, the United States and the United Kingdom and Australia came together to announce, make a joint statement announcing a new um, enhanced, as they put it, trilateral security partnership called AUKUS. So that stands for Australia, UK and US. Um, they say in this agreement that they will have um, a shared commitment to international rules-based order that will deepen diplomatic security and defense cooperation in the Indo-Pacific region. But basically what this is is a new um, agreement between these three already, you know, well-entrenched allied nations to strengthen their military control over the Indo-Pacific region. And so it's really highly problematic. It does relate to you know, as you point out, you know, ANZUS and Five Eyes, we have many agreements with many countries. Um, and so this does actually, you know, this is, in some ways it's not new, but it is new in this particular um, alliance. The biggest problem is, of course, that we actually don't know terribly much about it. This has been announced as if it's a fait accompli, but we actually have very little information. There's very little transparency, very little accountability, we haven't seen anything through our parliament or through any inquiries to talk about the scope or the true range of activities that this new alliance, this AUKUS agreement of, or whatever it is, is going to do. So it's really quite questionable. But what it did do straight out of the gate was it announced that the first thing that they were going to do was to help Australia acquire nuclear-powered submarines for the Royal Australian Navy. Mm. Um, so it's a quite problematic kind of arrangement. Yeah, well, even just then, you know, trying to um, talk about it, like we don't know whether to call it an agreement, an alliance, a pact, like what is it? We don't know because no one's told us and that these things can just emerge. Like, yeah, as you said, there's no um, there's no forewarning, there's no parliamentary process. It's mm-hmm. just kind of an announcement and then we're supposed to just accept that this is the, the um, new status quo or whatever. Um, but yeah, as you ma- how, mm, sorry, no, you go. How, quick, how quickly so many people did. 
They were like, oh, okay, that's it. Yep, we're getting nuclear submarines. No, 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 no. Mm. That is yet to be decided. Yeah, right. Well, so on that on that uh, initial announcement with this commitment to build a class of nuclear-propelled submarines for Australia, a project that will be led um, by the US and use US technology, can you talk us through this commitment and also what it means for Australia's military allyship with the US, including uh, US military presence in Australia? Yeah, well, again, still lacking in detail. Mm. <laughs> this is going to be really a theme. <laughs> yeah, this is going to be my theme for today, let me tell you. Um, lacking in detail on these things. But what we do know is that the aim is to build somewhere between 6 and, and 12, and most people are saying around 8 nuclear submarines. Let me just point out straight from the start, nuclear submarines are only in existence in those countries, with those countries who have nuclear arms at the moment. No country without nuclear weapons has these nuclear submarines. And that's because they're so tied into a nuclearized military and they're so tied into um, nuclear industries, domestic nuclear industries, that they can do that. Australia doesn't have either of those things. So this is setting a very dangerous precedent, nuclearizing our military. Um, it also ties us into further into, and I mean, we have been tied, let's face it, into a nuclear alliance with the United States for a very long time. Mm. We have professed our reliance on nuclear weapons for a very long time in this country through our defense white papers, for example, which always have spoken about how we need extended nuclear deterrence from the United States for our national security, even while in the same breath they often say that we believe in nuclear disarmament. So it's always been a problematic, you know, two-faced kind of way of talking about these things. But the United States has 5,550 nuclear weapons at the moment. UK has 195. So really, we're really tying ourselves into a very nuclearized kind of space here in military terms. So at the moment, we know that, you know, AUKUS is going to destabilize regional peace. We're already seeing a lot of concerns being raised within our region. A lot of the people within our, a lot of the um, nations within our region have signed on to the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, for example, um, which would actually prohibit the helping and aiding of nuclearized um, militaries in our region. A lot of people are very concerned about the Rauatonga Treaty, which is the South Pacific, uh, South Pacific Nuclear Free Zones Treaty. Um, and there's all, all sorts of other ways that people are concerned about the proliferation um, risks that are associated with this because these subs that the Americans and the UK use have highly enriched uranium, and that is weapons-grade uranium. So we need to be thinking about how this is going to impact on our region, and it's certainly not a great precedent um, to sort of be coming out the box with that as their first action for AUKUS. Yeah, I mean, I think that's such an interesting point, and I have heard um, other discussions actually on 3CR around that idea that Australia does have a reliance on uh, nuclear weapons in um, there, America and the UK, especially the US's uh, nuclear weapons, and to, and to kind of claim that, you know, when we're a non-nuclearized country or we don't participate in that is is um, kind of contradictory. Um, and, and people, I think it is really important that the public kind of become aware of of our relationship to nuclear weapons and, you know, um, fight back against that if that is, is as, it, as it is, a hugely problematic um, position for the Australian government to be taking. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Um, 
I mean, you've spoken a little bit there about uh, the way that this is going to destabilise um, relationships in the region and and spoken a little bit about uh, nuclear other nuclear treaties that it kind of um, will be problematic for as well. Is there anything further that you wanted to mention in regards to like the nuclear ban treaty or nuclear non-proliferation treaty and other treaties around nuclear weapons and nuclear disarmament? Well, sure. I mean, I guess, you know, just to drill down further into the regional kind of impacts of this, you know, we've heard a lot from regional countries talking about how the um, nuclear, the, the AUKUS agreement and the nuclear submarines and so forth worry them in terms of proliferation and so on. But just to give you a sense of how many countries in our region have signed on to the treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons, Australia is a bit of an outlier, you know, no. of the ASEAN states. There are 10 ASEAN states. Six of them are already state parties to the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons and three more are signatories. So that's nine of those. There's 16 Pacific Island Forum states. Ten of them are already parties to the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. So there's actually we're surrounded by people who have already agreed that this should be a nuclear-free um, region. We should be working towards eliminating nuclear weapons, not drilling down more into a nuclearized military way of being. So while, you know, the United States and, and, you know, you heard the prime minister come out on the day and say, oh, we're not looking to get nuclear weapons and we're not looking to build a, a civilian nuclear capacity for Australia. But at the same time, how can that be the case? if you're putting nuclear submarines into our oceans, into our ports, into the region, um, through our, the regional waters and so forth, how is it that you are not looking to nuclearize our military? It, it just doesn't make sense. Mm, absolutely. And it does also tie us yeah, even further to the U.S. If we don't even have that capability, it's like, will we rely on them <laughs> to maintain everything? And, yeah, just kind exactly. of a... Yeah. Um, I was wondering as well about your area of research is, you know, nuclear weapons and you're mentioning other Pacific nations there. Um, mm-hmm. And your research is around nuclear testing in the Pacific and resistant, resistance efforts um, that have been historically taking place in the Pacific. I'm wondering if you could talk about the importance of that history of resistance and other anti-war activism in the region when we consider the AUKUS Pact and, you know, how we can proceed. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the Pacific, and and this includes Australia in my mind, the Pacific and Australia have for like 50 years of last century were used as a nuclear testing field by the same characters that are, are at play here in the AUKUS agreement plus the French. So it's the UK, the US and the French. They bombed this region 315 times. Mm. They used the region as a nuclear testing site 315 times, including 12 times here in Australia with the atmospheric test that the British ran. You know, it's, it's, it's hard not to feel the irony of these people then coming into our region and saying, we're going to protect you when they've been the aggressors in this sense. Mm. So um, there has been an incredible uh, resistance movement throughout the Pacific over the whole of, um, you know, a lot of last century, of course, you know, many of those Pacific states were still colonised, indeed, by these very people who came and bombed in them. So once, but once the independence movements were um, building and independence was growing throughout the region, we saw more and more of them stepping up to talk against nuclear testing. And we still see today 
very strong positions by many of the new, uh, many of the Pacific states against nuclear weapons, against nuclear testing, and calling for nuclear justice. So we will see a lot more of that. And, you know, even if you see in response to the AUKUS agreement, the kinds of responses we've seen from, say, Kiribati, who pointed to the, the harms of nuclear testing and how this AUKUS agreement had gone by them without any conversation with Australia. They were surprised by this action, but they felt the harm still of the nuclear testing there. You know, there's been many of the nuclear states, uh, many of the Pacific states who have spoken out about this and their concerns and their very real concerns about it, which also led to the Rawapurma Treaty being formed back in 1985. Um, so, yeah, it'll, it'll, it's going to be a stronger and stronger narrative that we hear, I hope, throughout the region. But actually, right here in Australia, why don't we have the, why don't we have that sense of these people have bombed us in the past with nuclear weapons? Why would we want to be getting into a nuclear alliance with them, even if it is, as some people say, just propulsion? It's not. It's never just propulsion. It's compulsion to be tied into this nuclear, militarized kind of mindset. Mm, absolutely. And I think, yeah, so important to um, turn to those kind of, you know, experts in the Pacific who have been organising and experiencing um, the effects of uh, nuclear testing for a very long time um, and really elevating those voices and thinking about and, and learning from them and thinking about, OK, this is this is serious and this isn't just, as you say, this isn't just about propulsion. This is about um, kind of tying ourselves into a nuclearized military industrial complex. I was wondering, um, just to wrap up, we're running, unfortunately, out of time, but that's OK, because tonight at 7 p.m. Um, you're going to be speaking as part of the raucous Antiochus caucus organised by renegade activists. Um, it's taking place at 7 p.m on Zoom. I was just wondering if you could give listeners a little idea of what's going to be happening and also um, where they can join you. Well, sure. Um, it's absolutely. It's going to be a fun night. Uh, we've got, it's an hour and a half webinar, um, so there's a little bit of talking going on at the beginning. Guy Rundle, Clinton Fernandez, myself, Dave Sweeney, Tale Mangioni, and Scott Ludlam are all speaking and then there's going to be um, breakout rooms, which will run for about 15 minutes with facilitators um, coming throughout all of those rooms, um, looking at different aspects. So you can get into one of those rooms to talk about a different aspect. So, for example, you might want to talk about the um, keeping disarmament, or you might want to talk about Pacific solidarity, or you might want to talk about more, no subsidies for nukes, or you might want to talk about defeating the sub proposal. There's all sorts of different breakout rooms that you can come and join in on and get some action ideas and, and generate some more discussion about those. So it'll be really great. Jacob Greck from Renegade Activists will be um, facilitating and lots of other people will be in there facilitating the rooms as well so um, it'll be a lot of fun you can get tickets um, that you can look at it up online through renegade activists um, on twitter and instagram but get tickets at humanitics um, uh, as well so it should be quite fun that's so great. Thank you so much, Dimity, for joining us. And yeah, it sounds like a really great way to approach such a huge and complex problem to kind of break it down into these breakout rooms and get people to um, have a conversation more focused in that way. So thank you for um, yeah all of your insights and um, looking forward to that event tonight.
Thank you. Just then we heard from Dimity Hawkins, a PhD candidate at Swinburne University, and she joined us to talk about the implications of the AUKUS pack with a specific focus on the announcement of those nuclear subs um, uh, that came along with that announcement earlier in September. You're on 3CR Thursday morning breakfast. To enable change, we need to show broad community support. Show your support for walking and cycling in the city of Yarra by appearing as a champion on the Streets Alive website, representing your local street, neighbourhood or school. It's fast, free and simple. Learn more at streets-alive-yarra.org. A 3CR supporter. You are listening to 3CR 855 AM. Just a content warning for listeners um, that our next interview, um, there will be discussions around disordered eating and body image. And if this brings up anything for you, you can reach out to the Butterfly Foundation on 1-800-334673. We are speaking to Laura, a clinical psychologist from Melbourne who has specialised in eating disorders for over seven years through research, outreach work, support groups, and as a therapist, and currently works in public and private practice supporting individuals affected by eating disorders. Hey, Laura, thanks for joining us this morning. Hey, thank you so much for having me here. Nah, super excited. Well, not super excited because it is a pretty (laughs) dreary topic. Um, I guess we'll just jump right into it. There has been a significant rise in people presenting to eating disorder support services since the start of the pandemic in Australia, including more complex and severe presentations. What do you think is specific or special about this period that is making body image and disordered eating issues more present or even more exacerbated? Mm, Yeah, that's, um, that's a fantastic question. So I guess when we think about disordered eating, body image and eating disorders, they're really complex mental and physical illnesses and concerns and of course, they're not something that is at all a choice or born out of anything to do with vanity. Um, and they can affect anyone. And as you said, unfortunately, they're becoming more common and severe and complex. And there are a lot of factors that can and have come into play with this. And honestly, I think it's kind of hard to think of a scenario that could have prevented as many societal risk factors for disordered eating at once as yeah. the pandemic has. Um, like over the past 18 months, we've had, you know, really widespread social isolation, loss of routine, stress grief, disconnect from support, and huge amounts of really harmful socio-cultural pressure and diet culture regarding body and exercise and eating during the lockdown. Yeah. Um, we couple that with things like, you know, food scarcity and insecurity, that clearly just to leave the house has been planned exercise or grocery shopping, that there's so much social media use which is really stored, and mm. even things like seeing ourselves on camera in video conferences more, yes. which for some people has really heightened their awareness of their appearance. and. Um, on top of that, you know, like other mental health concerns like anxiety, trauma, stress, depression, obsessive compulsive disorder, they've also really risen throughout the pandemic and these are things that can really often co-occur with and kind of perpetuate or compound and be implicated in disordered eating. Um, And so a lot of people, you know, have really understandably been really distressed or overwhelmed or numb and our worlds have gotten a lot smaller in a number of ways and when this is all kind of immersed with these factors that I've mentioned, this has resulted oftentimes for a lot of people in the onset or worsening of eating and exercise and body image concerns. And finally, like on top of that, so many of the things that might otherwise protect or keep people well have also fallen away 
and our healthcare systems have been super overloaded, which means that although things like early detection and intervention, so, you know, catching things early, treating them early or as soon as we can, they're really important in these domains, but it's actually taking longer for people to be seen and supported, meaning that sadly, um, and this is both across metropolitan Melbourne, but also really happening in like rural, regional areas. Yeah. Um, it means that eating disorders or disordered eating and body image concerns are getting worse before they get picked up on and get treated. Yeah, yeah. It, I, I can imagine it's really hard at the moment because we are so isolated from our usual support networks or mm. our usual like health practitioners or stuff to like kind of pick up on what's going on. And there's so much like the narrative at the moment, like online and amongst friends and families, like mm. it's getting to that time of year where everyone's talking about like getting beach ready and summer body, like those really unhelpful and toxic kind of narratives around it. And now we have the added pressure of like your post lockdown body and mm-hmm. it's, it's just all adding up. And I guess another major factor which you mentioned is like last year we saw social media sites like TikTok really blow up, including all of us also using social media a lot more with all the free time we had. Is there a role for social media in exacerbating issues with body image and disordered eating? Yeah, so absolutely. Um, I think they're hitting the nail on the head with that one. So things like TikTok and Instagram and heaps of other platforms are really rife with things that can fuel disordered eating and body image concerns. Like if Mm -hmm. we kind of break it down into different sort of sections, like in terms of content, there are, like you said, like a lot of things focused on weight loss or quote-unquote body transformation pictures there's talk about, you know, food content, trends like, you know, calorie or food tracking, taking photos of everything you consume, sharing them online. There's heaps of misinformation about food and bodily needs, you know, recommending amounts that, you know, not even a toddler would need to survive in a day. Yeah. Um, there are accounts based purely around diets that promote disordered eating. There are these, you know, uh, alleged um, fitness and wellness influencers, oh, yeah. advertisements for, you know, really harmful diet products. And, you know, these are things that people get paid to promote and things and they often come from people that might be, you know, looked up to in society um, or, you know, socioculturally. And we think like those ideals have that quote-unquote ideal body type and it's really misleading. And mm. on top of that, you know, thinking about the images that we get shown to, so often people are using body editing filters and features and body shaming content and also just a huge amount of, you know, basically trolls and bullies that just go online to criticise and tear other people down. Mm. And on top of this, like, these apps have super powerful algorithms um, that put forward a stream of suggested posts based on things like your location, your gender, your age, your yeah. social data, and then the videos and ca- accounts that you like, that you that you view or that you like or that you follow. So what can happen and what is happening is that in an incredibly short period of time, someone who has like stumbled across or searched something about food or exercise appearance could suddenly have an app feed that's like almost exclusively filled with that content. And so whether they've already got a complicated um, relationship with food or exercise or body image or are on the precipice with some emerging concerns or have never struggled with those things before, exposure to that content can really bring it, you know, to the forefront of people's minds and quite quickly plunge them into disordered eating, negative body image and comparison and obsession. And, you know, this content that we're getting in these apps, it's not normal, but it is so, so common that it's becoming normative. Um, And, yeah, it's really dark and dangerous. And there are a lot of research findings as well that continue to demonstrate and drive home just what I've described. Yeah. I think just as you were sharing all of that, I was reflecting on my own like 
Instagram explore page and look, I love looking at like cooking videos and like pictures of dogs, but I have noticed that my explore page is a lot more targeted around like health and wellness stuff and it's not something I actively search, but yeah, it, it sounds like the algorithm is really plugging us to like take in that content and understandably yeah, make puts us at more risk to kind of consider all of that. And I guess on the flip side, like, are there any positives with us accessing social media more often or just in general with the content? Like, I know for myself, I find it a really useful place for community information and peer support. But have there been any like positive sides to this kind of change in the way we use social media? Yeah, I think that absolutely can and um, can be and are positives in, in how we use social media and what we see. But I think it very much comes down to, you know, like the accounts that you follow and the yeah. communities that you're part of online. And so following accounts from, you know, like you said, you know, peer support or qualified and well-informed mental health professionals or organisations, that can be absolutely golden. Like these are accounts who might be, you know, if we're thinking kind of the skills that we're discussing in particular, are recovery-oriented, they're intersectional, they follow what we call like a health at every size approach, which yes. is really inclusive. They've got really well-grounded evidence backing up any information. They embrace true freedom and intuitive or joyful movement. They celebrate body diversity and they're free of any of those trends or themes that I mentioned before. And so, mm. yeah, kind of um, it can be a really good idea to, you know, have a bit of a look about, you know, at who you're following or, you know, what Instagram is suggesting to you, you know, if it's showing things that you don't actually like or that aren't good for you, you can, you know, write, you know, click that button that's like, I'm actually not interested in this post, you know, kind of retraining the algorithm a little bit, clean up your feed or even, you know, take a break from the app if, um, you know, you're realising that they're maybe harming you a little bit more than they're helping you. Yeah. So it's kind of like curating your feed, as they say mm, these days. Yeah, absolutely. And what conversations do we need to be having with friends and families and even our workplaces during this pandemic around disordered eating and looking after ourselves and each other? Mm, I think, um, you know, during the pandemic and also outside of that, I think it's so important to create spaces where, you know, diet and body talk just doesn't happen and where food and exercise and appearances, you know, of ourselves and others aren't judged or conflated with character or success or failure or worth or morality. And, you know, that a comment about, what someone's eating or how they look or how much they're exercising isn't, you know, used so frequently in conversation. Like, you know, that's not how we're meant to, you know, greet someone like, oh, you look so X, Y, Z. Like, you know, say hello. Show genuine interest in that person. Let you know that you care for them and value them for who they are as a person, not for, you know, how they eat, exercise or look. Um, And this can mean really, you know, being counterculture, laying down some boundaries and being mindful about what we say. Even these small changes can be just so significant in ensuring that we feel a lot safer, that the people around us feel safer and more comfortable. And, you know, some additional ways to do that can be to, um, yeah, just kind of, you know, educate ourselves a lot more um, and, you know, look out for warning signs. And if we do see someone that we're concerned about, um, there are definitely some gentle ways of opening up that conversation. And um, I noticed that you mentioned, yeah, the Butterfly Foundation up top, um, you know, places like the Butterfly Foundation and if you're based in Victoria, um, or, or I guess broadly speaking, has the internet, um, yeah. Eating Disorders Victoria also has some really great resources for this on yeah. the website and they can just sort of, you know, yeah, help you kind of figure out how to start that conversation and well if you're a little bit concerned about someone. No, that's epic. And I guess, like, um, as we wrap up for today, can you just, t- like, flag... What are some things we should maybe be looking out for ourselves, looking out for ourselves, to know that we might need to talk to someone 
Mm, yeah, that's a great question. I think, um, you know, it can be quite hard to spot in ourselves sometimes, um, especially when, you know, we're living in this diet culture kind of world um, and because disordered eating can come in so many forms. But I guess broadly speaking, you know, there are some, like, thoughts and feelings and behaviours that might be able to clue us into something not being quite right. Like, you know, are we thinking about food or exercise the body a lot or do we have rules about what we must or mustn't do? Do we find that, like, our self-worth or our confidence or just how we're feeling, like anxiety, guilt, fear, depression, stress, shame, self-criticism are really kind of related to those to those features? Um, do we actually engage in any behaviours to try and control our appearance, shape, weight, body size, food, exercise? And I think really importantly, too, like, are we missing out on other parts of our life, like, you know, rest or social or studies, hobbies, work? the ability to be spontaneous and kind of free and have joy, you know, because of things like food or exercise or appearance. And, of course, this isn't a complete list, but they can be important to look out for. And um, there's a really great online resource called Reach Out and Recover. Um, It's like an online screener that you can fill in anonymously and just sort of see, like, oh, do these things resonate with me if something's not quite right? And on top of that, like we said, Butterfly Foundation, Eating Disorder Victoria, chatting to a good GP. Yes. And, um, you know, it can feel really scary doing these things. I think I even acknowledging, you know, that you might need some help is incredibly courageous. And yeah. you know, for anyone that is having some trouble with these things, with the right support, it absolutely can and does get better. 100%. Thank you so much, Laura, for joining us this morning and sharing your Thank wisdom you. and um, just like. And like enlightening us on like how nuanced and complex this conversation is. Um, and for anyone that needs any extra support today, um, you can always reach out to the Butterfly Foundation on 1-800-33-4673. Thanks again, Laura. It was my pleasure. Thanks so much. Bye. You are listening to 3CR 855 AM. And we were just speaking to Laura, um, a clinical psychologist based in Nam. Um, around the impacts of COVID-19 on disordered eating and body image. Australia has joined together with their imperial mates from the US and the UK, forming a new military partnership, AUKUS. The AUKUS Anti-AUKUS Caucus is bringing together activists from across the country to launch a fight back, and we need you to join us. Panelists include Scott Ludlam, Guy Rundle, Clinton Fernandez, Felicity Ruby, Tyler Mangione, Dimity Hawkins, Jacob Grech and Dave Sweeney. Join us online on Thursday the 7th of October at 7pm. For more information and to register, visit renegadeactivist.org or check out Renegade Activists on all the socials. A 3CR supporter. They're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moorabbin. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah. Yena Fasaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm, we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. You are listening to 3CR 855 AM. 
We are now going to be speaking with Anu Krishnan, a specialist family violence practitioner with over 25 years experience in direct services, prevention and training. And she will be joining us to speak about the situation for culturally and linguistically diverse communities experiencing or accessing support for family violence in Victoria. Just a content warning that we will be discussing themes around family and domestic violence. And if you are needing some extra support today, you can reach out to 1-800-RESPECT on one 800 737 And just a reminder that despite current lockdown restrictions, you can leave home if you are worried or experiencing family violence. Good morning, Anu. How are you? Good morning. Um, Thank you once again for joining us um, today. I guess we'll just jump right into it. Um, The federal and state government are channeling funding for family violence support for multi-faith and multicultural communities. What impact will this have for service providers when supporting these communities? Um, it's a really good thing that, in particular, the Victorian state government has adopted all the recommendations from the Royal Commission into Family Violence. Yeah. And one of the gaps that was highlighted was the support available for women from multicultural backgrounds and from faith communities. What this does is that it affords women an opportunity to access culturally appropriate support yeah. and also provides support in language, which is a major barrier for women seeking to leave violent relationships um, by engaging bicultural or bilingual workers, we are able to ensure that um, we completely understand what the woman is undergoing because not all forms of violence are same across the board, across cultures. Yeah, yeah. And the Royal Commission found that, like you said, that immigrant and refugee women are disproportionately affected by family violence and that there are serious barriers to family violence access in these communities. What might be some of the unique barriers um, for accessing support for these women? Um, Absolutely. Um, I just said earlier that uh, not all forms of violence are recognised or similarly with women across from different multicultural or multilingual backgrounds. Many of the newer migrants, and in fact even migrants who have been here for a while, may not be aware that some forms of behaviors that they endure are actually violent because of their acculturation back in their home countries. The laws there might be different or their awareness of these things might be different. In particular, we find that emotional abuse and financial abuse are not immediately recognized as family violence, as is um, things like electronic surveilling or e-violence, cyber violence. That isn't often immediately recognized as controlling behavior. And that's because of the lack of awareness that many multicultural women have to laws in this country, particularly with their new migrants. With this support, we are able to bring greater awareness of what family violence is and the ranges of support that's available. There is also a lot of myths around the fact that, um, A, that only physical violence, like violence that leaves marks, is something that the police will look at or that that's what you can get support for. Um, And that's not true like we know. And the other massive barrier is many times women believe that the minute you report family violence, the relationship is gone. They are going to be out on the streets. And with some of this funding, we can help women rebuild lives when they want to leave violent relationships and also offer them the support of safety plans and other interventions. Mm. So the violent behaviour does not continue. Mm. I guess there is that general idea that 
family violence or domestic violence is only physical violence, like you said, but we know that it's a lot more nuanced and there is like different aspects that are constantly emerging, like we see with like e-surveillance and cyberbullying and all those sort of things. And also you're right in there is that fear that once you do report it, it means the end of the relationship and having to figure everything out um, with your support. But the reality is there are awesome workers like yourself and um, wonderful support services out there that are there to support them and hold their hands through that journey. Um, so true. And with newer migrants, that's a massive amount of work that we need to educate them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, building those connections with those communities so we can kind of share that information and answer questions that might come up. Um, In a recent statement from the Multicultural Centre for Women's Health, they shared, and I quote, In multicultural Victoria, there are 46.8% of the community either born overseas or with one or both parents born overseas. We clearly must see the needs of immigrant and refugee communities as being a central part of mainstream set mainstream response. In fact, it should be the mainstream response. What would be the impacts of having this more nuanced mainstream approach which incorporates like the experiences of like migrant newly arrived communities? That is actually so true. We keep forgetting that Australia is one of the most multicultural communities on the planet and a lot of mainstream services for with absolutely wonderful intentions have a single-focused model in responding to the requirements for support from women and families from multicultural backgrounds. What this means is that it can often alienate um, people from migrant and refugee backgrounds, people who have not been here for so long, and people who don't have the built-up social capital that um, mainstream community here might have just because they've been here much longer. What I mean by that is that, of course, you know, one in two Australians have a connection to a multicultural community because the parent was born overseas, yeah. uh, who knows, from a different language background. But just by having been here for a lot longer, yeah. they have a lot of inbuilt support networks of family, friends, and other services and engagement with services. Mm. With the migrants and refugees who are more newly arrived, mm. they're still building up those connections. Yeah. And therefore, when they access support, they may not really have the social connections that would empower them Mm. to stand true to the decision. So what often happens is that they might leave, but then after a little while they might go back, Mm. not because the violence has stopped, not because things have changed, Mm. because they just are not able to navigate the system alone and they need Mm. support in setting themselves up, raising families. Mm. This actually puts at risk the migrant family themselves, as well as any children that might be involved. Yes. Because it uh, boldens the perpetrator to say, okay, she's not really going to leave or stay away. Mm. And now she's learned her lesson. She may not go back and mm. report it to the police or go outside. Yeah. And that just uh, increases the risk that the woman um, experiences. Mm. With a more nuanced approach, what happens is we are able to help the woman build up the social networks and the connections mm. so that she is supported after she leaves a violent relationship. And perhaps the support needs to be slightly different in yeah. terms of not just taking care of her immediate needs of housing and maybe financial support, but maybe skilling her up so she's able to find work outside so she can financially support herself 
helping her navigate the system so she can get any benefits and making her aware of benefits that she might not be aware of. Because Mm -hmm. many of these people come from countries where this level of social welfare or social support may not be the norm. So we need to educate women that there's a range of support services they can get and remove the stigma of leaving a violent relationship and not treating it as a family breakdown that she is responsible for, but as a relationship breakdown that has happened because someone else has actually perpetrated violence. Yeah, and I guess that's the central message that we need to keep coming back to, that, yeah, it is it is a result of the perpetrator's actions, but it impacts the family in so many different ways, and it's more nuanced than just having a roof over the head and some and the finances to support um, the family after leaving. Um, thank you so much for joining us this morning, Anu, to kind of share your perspectives from working in the sector for so long and sharing your wisdom. And um, like I said, if this interview brings up anything for anyone you can always reach out to 1800 respect on 1-800-737-732 and just a reminder that you can leave home even under the current lockdown restrictions if you are worried or experiencing family violence thanks again anu no problems my pleasure malika you're listening to 3CR 855 AM and we were just speaking with Anu Krishnan, a specialist family violence practitioner with over 25 years of experience in direct services prevention and training. She works within mental health and family violence settings to bring greater cultural understanding and awareness of their work. And she joined us to speak a bit about the situation for culturally and linguistically diverse communities experiencing or accessing support for family violence in Victoria. Awesome. And I think we've got time for just one more track. So this is that classic banger recently released by King Stingray, Milkumana. Yeah. 
You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CRA 55 AM, and we're coming up to the end of the show. We'll just do a very quick rundown. So first up, we spoke with Elle Gibbs about how the federal and state governments have failed disabled people during the COVID-19 vaccine rollout. We then spoke with Jay Coonan from the Anti-Poverty Centre about the proposed sale of public land by Moreland Council to build a privately owned health and community services precinct in Coburg. We then spoke with Dimity Hawkins um, in preparation for the Raucous Anti-Orcus Caucus that's happening tonight at 7pm on Zoom. We then spoke with Laura, a clinical psychologist um, from NUM, about the impacts of COVID-19 and the pandemic on disordered eating and body image. And finally, we caught up with Anu Krishnan, who's a specialist family violence practitioner, about uh, funding the situation for culturally and linguistically diverse communities experiencing or accessing support for family violence. And if this show brought up anything for you, you can also reach out to Lifeline on 131114. Thank you. Thank you so much. We'll catch you next week. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.